the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. A social distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non-physical ways to say hello. Wave, wink, use sign language, salute, smile, give the peace sign, throw up an air high five, do jazz hands. Remember, stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. While our workplaces and society are growing ever more diverse, what are we doing to support inclusive cultures? Well, a new book tackles that uh, that very question. It's called Subtle Acts of Exclusion, How to Understand, Identify, and Stop Microaggressions. And if you don't know what microaggressions are, you need to stay tuned and listen to my conversation with cultural anthropologist and co-author of the book, Michael Barron, who joins me by phone. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. Before we get into uh, talking about microaggressions, I have to ask, what is uh, the difference between a cultural anthropologist and uh, a plain old anthropologist? (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm still scarred from telling certain people in my family that I was going to be a cultural anthropologist, and they said, why do you want to study dinosaur bones? (laughs) Um, So I don't take for granted that anyone knows what that means. So anthropologists in general studies humans, right? Maybe human biology or maybe an archaeologist who digs up you know, old old human remains and remains, you know, buried societies and things like that, or a linguistic anthropologist, which is really focused on language, or a cultural anthropologist, really focused on cultures and how they work and how they perpetuate inequality or don't, and, you know, how they help us make meaning of our lives, all of those good things related to culture. So you don't uh, get out in, into archaeological digs and, and find out about past cultures, or do you? 
No, I don't do that. I went to, I got my uh, PhD from the University of Michigan, which is what we call a four-field anthropology program. So we had to learn about all the different subfields a little bit. So not all schools are like that in their training, but we did get to learn about that. And I, I find it fascinating, but my day-to-day is, is way more talking to people, you know, shadowing them around in their daily life, participating with them, asking them questions, doing interviews with them. It's that. It's, it's not digging in the dirt. So you went to uh, University of Michigan. Where are you now? Yeah, now I live in Maryland, um, up near Frederick, Maryland. Actually, in some ways, I do dig in the dirt occasionally because my wife and I, with our along with our four kids, we live on a small um, iris flower farm. My wife uh, grows iris flowers in addition to being a writer. So um, occasionally, we do dig in the dirt. But hopefully, you're not finding remains. <laughs> well, hopefully not. <laughs> yeah. Um, or you'd be writing a whole different book. That would um, be a different book, yes. Um, but um, but as long as we're on the subject, since your wife's a writer and and uh, and with what you do, plus digging in the irises, um, <laughs> have you been working at home before the uh, coronavirus? Yeah. So before the coronavirus, I I kind of split my time between working at a home office and then traveling all over the country and the world to you know deliver keynotes and do workshops and trainings and things and and or research things like that. Um, so now, of course, those in-person talks and trainings have stopped, and, and any research or or talks or trainings that I'm doing now are done being done virtually at least for now. And let's let's move on to uh, kind of the subject of the book and microaggressions. What do you mean when you say microaggressions? Yeah, so what people often have meant by that term is those times when when people might not be trying to be um, to exclude people or to hurt people. They might have been trying to tell a joke or to bond with someone or to just ask a question out of curiosity. Um, that's, That's what they're trying to do maybe, but the impact is that it makes another person with a marginalized identity feel bad or excluded or not valued. And and so that's what what has been meant by that term microaggression. Is um, it is it something that can that can happen unbeknownst to the uh, aggressor? Well, absolutely. So it can, it can. There's a whole when you think of the the hurt and the injustice and the violence that's being caused to to people with marginalized identities. There's a whole range of them and some of them are very intentional and very explicit and some of them are not and so the idea with these with what people meant by microaggressions is that these are the ones that are are not intending to be aggressive and that actually is part of the the reason why tiffany tiffany and i in this book um decided to rename and reconceptualize that term as something else because what we were finding is we'd go into you know separately we work for separate companies but we would um I'd go in to do a training, and and we'd try try to tell people, hey, you know, when you call that person, when you call that black person articulate, that was a microaggression, and here's why. And they'd get super defensive, like, 
I wasn't trying to be aggressive at all. How can you call that a microaggression? And they'd dig their heels in. And other people would feel slighted as if we were saying this wasn't a big deal, that this was micro. And in fact, these things aren't micro. They have huge effects on people's satisfaction at their jobs, on their happiness, on their health, their mental health, and their physical health, because they're happening so frequently. And so Tiffany and I kind of put our heads together and said, hey, we need to reconceptualize this. And that's where the idea of subtle acts of exclusion was born. There are a lot of things that that make it uh, more complicated for people to understand when they're misspeaking. And I I always think of an example. I'm old enough, uh, Michael, to remember back in the 60s and white people very unintentionally, in fact, um, meaning to do the exact opposite would use the phrase, and, and I always like to, to bring this phrase up when I talk about this, this type of thing, um, because it's, it's just so hokey and so corny. I remember people saying and meaning it um, in, in the most kindest of ways, mm-hmm. some of my best friends are colored. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that was something that just grated on the people they were saying it to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I see this, for example, even right today in the current moment. So one of the things I've been doing, for example, is you have these leaders of organizations who want to send, as soon as all the, you know, the murder of George Floyd and and the protest started, um, you have these leaders of organizations who would want to send an email out to, to their employees saying, you know, hey, we recognize at this time, you know, there's a lot going on and we recognize you might be experiencing pain and grief. And, you know, they just wanted to send a communication out to people. And one of the things I would do is work with them to do that in a way that that felt good to people. And it was amazing. Here they were trying to do something really good, um, you know, like you say, with the best of intentions. And the subtle ways in which the first draft that they sent me was not going to land well are really <laughs> in, it's interesting right like even things like we're uh, hey everyone we're all so exhausted and tired from seeing this right yes that's true but we are not all exhausted and tired of it to the same degree right and saying it like that is not seeing the the pain and the experiences that people have been having that black americans have been having for their whole lives right and so coming from the best of intentions but not landing in the way that they want it and so we really need to think about all those subtle those subtleties in communication is it possible to be as as some people like to claim color blind no, it is not possible. <laughs> this, you know, when when you think about race, um, this is an important part of people's identities, who they are. It shapes their experiences. It shapes. It has shaped for our whole history and now the entire, you know, the structures that we live in, the way that we tell stories about our history, the unequal um, outcomes that we see in terms of wealth and education and health. Um, And if you're not, 
if you're really seeing things, you're going to see that. And if you're not seeing them, it means you're kind of trying not to see them. And that's not a good thing. That's actually uh, almost like a willfully ignorant sort of thing. So it's important. You know, people say that a lot of um, a lot of black people that I would talk to would say they he- they often hear people saying, "Well, I don't even see you as black, right? You're just to me, you're just Tom, or you know." And they say, "I know people don't mean something terrible by that, but it but- is having the effect of showing them you don't see me then." You don't see me and my experiences and who I really am. And you might have some problematic ideas of what that category means if you think I'm some exception to that, right? And, and that's just it. You know, people wrestle with uh, this this whole notion of um, not being racist, yet it, it's it's completely, for some reason, it's it's uncomfortable when trying to refer to someone who's black, um, there have been, um, you know, African American is the new uh, uh, colloquialism. Um, the fact that that people wrestle with how do we refer to people who are black? I mean, we're hearing people mm-hmm. of color. Um, you know, I like I said earlier, because it was so hokey and so old school, I go back to the days when there were colored people, like the, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, which yep. still has that, that same acronym, NAACP. Um, yep. I, I go back to that time, and then it was black, and then it was African American, and mm-hmm. then people of color started working in. But, but this... this um, you know this this exercise in trying to come up with the appropriate thing to say that doesn't have any baggage um yeah. brings it brings a whole different kind of baggage that nobody was really expecting or intending yeah i mean those you know those words and those terms they matter um you know and and as times change the 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 words that people use certainly change um and and we have to be we just have to be attuned to that and to listen to people and how they identify themselves and okay that's how you identify yourself that's the word i'll use you know so i don't get I don't get hung up in things like that. And I, I think one of the really important things that we're that we're doing with this book and with the work in general is trying to move people away from this idea that you have to walk on eggshells and you have to say everything so perfectly or else you're going to make some big faux pas. Um, we, hey, you know, <laughs> that's not the way we're going to really come together and build trust and bond and create a movement for justice. That's not the way it's going to happen. I mean, I worked for a, I did some work for a veterinary um, hospital, and they said things were so tense around race, they felt like they couldn't even say the word black lab when a black lab came in for treatment. Um, so that's not the way we're going to get there, and that's not the way we have to get there, right? So what we're trying to do is... And that's the- not uncommon, Michael. Oh, no, not at all. And, the, and no one wants that. I don't think anyone wants that, right? Um, you know, certainly certainly, black people don't want that, right? We, want, they, we all want to come together and to really do the work, to really engage, to really be seen and valued for who we are, and to commit 
you know, as my colleague um, David Stone would say, to commit to, to stumbling and fumbling it through it together, to recognize we're going to mess up and that's okay, but we're committed to it and we're trying it. And what, what sounded good today is not going to sound good tomorrow and there are going to be mistakes all over the place. And that's fine. You know, the, the important thing is the work that we're putting in and the commitment to do it together. More with cultural anthropologist and author Michael Behrens. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Tom Sumner Program is hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the Briggs. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write us at TomSumnerProgram.com. Call us at 810-339-8255 or contact us on Facebook or Twitter. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner program where to go. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. 
I was telling you a little while ago about my wife, and I don't want you to be confused, but we were, I've been married more, more than once. In fact, I've been married three, three times. But my first two wives each died a very tra tragic death. My first wife died from eating po poison mushrooms. And my second wife died from a fra fractured skull. She wouldn't eat her mushrooms. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob Hope back once again to tell you it's better to have Pepsodent flowing over your teeth now than to have water running under your bridge later. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to Tom Sumner Program. More with cultural anthropologist and author Michael Barron straight ahead. You know, um, we're we're sort of focused on on racism, but the book addresses other kinds of exclusion as well, uh, sexism and ableism and other forms of discrimination. But racism is the one that certainly is the most pronounced and the one that is trending right now. And I've been hearing a phrase that, that I'd love to hear you comment on, um, that it's not good enough to simply be not racist. You have to be anti-racist. What right. does that mean exactly? Yeah, so so I'm sure this term has been used before. I know that lots of people are talking about it now following the Ibram X. Kendi book, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist, which I think was number one or at least one or two or three on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, so, so people are reading about this idea, which is great, because the idea for too long we've defined racism as you know, one individual doing something explicitly mean or cruel to another individual, right? And it when most of us aren't doing that, right? Most of us aren't doing that at all. And so it allows us to say, I'm not racist, right? And, and be kind of passive in the way that we accept the unequal distribution of, of things in our, in our country, right? And that's unfolded in our history, in our society, in our culture. And we, our society is built on the exploitation of certain groups of people. And so what that idea of an anti-racist means is it's not enough to neutrally accept those inequalities. If we want to be good people, we have to be combating those inequalities. We have to be anti-racist. We have to be doing work to dismantle those systems which privilege some people over others. How do we acknowledge inequalities without inadvertently perpetuating inequality? Yeah, it's hard. It takes a lot of work, first of all, right? So I mean, we, we bounce around. We, we talked about words, and one that always, that always strikes me, and it, it happens a lot in, in urban communities, like the one that I grew up in, um, is at-risk communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we have to, it's, that's another one where the language really matters. Sometimes the language, you know, is a, is a matter of semantics, and sometimes it's not. The way that we frame things carries implications about how the thing works and what's going on and what's the best way to address it, right? Um, so things like 
um, at-risk communities, right? It makes it seem like there's something inherently wrong with that community, right? Rather than the fact that a society is putting them at risk by the way it divvies out access to resources and goods and things like that, right? So, so those languages, um, they really matter. And part of what we have to do, and you see this, this is why like the top 10 best-selling books right now are all about race and racism. The part of what we have to do is educate ourselves to do a lot of work to understand this issue better. There's so much we don't understand. Uh, we, we're told stories and myths about history, that, even in school, right? And there's so much uncovering about truth that has to happen historically and presently. And we have to do that work ourselves. We can't expect like black people to educate us on these issues. And here I'm, I say us, I mean white people. I'm a white man. And, you know, we have to talk with one another. We have to educate ourselves. It's on us. And, and then that's not enough, right? It's not enough to just read some books and go about your business. But then you've got to actually put that stuff into action. And and what what does that action look like? Because I've... I, I actually remember seeing um, uh, Alan Keyes speak once, uh, who's uh, a black conservative, and um, and he was talking about that the black community had been victimized by the compassion of the Democratic Party. And how do you how do you try to reach out and and i'm i'm i guess uh, sort of defending or feeling bad for the the democrats who inadvertently uh, victimized the black community um how do you reach out and and try to help without um somehow making the the situation worse mhm yeah part of it i think is um it's not envisioning any any one person, any one party as some sort of savior, right? The way we make things better is by including those marginalized people in the power, right? That's how we, I think, how we make things better. So when when you have a group of, you know, I work with organizations. When you have a diverse group of people at the senior leadership level of an organization, you're going to make better decisions for diversity, equity, and inclusion most of the time, right? Um, if you have the senior leadership that is all white or all men, you're not necessarily going to be considering the interests of everyone, not necessarily for bad intentions, but sometimes it doesn't come to mind or you don't think of it or you have unconscious biases that you don't even know about. And so I think that's really key is inviting is inviting people, inviting people to the meetings where decisions are made, where having more diverse leadership, building more equity in our society where people have the power themselves and don't have to sit around and wait for anyone else to, to make things better for them. Yeah, before I started doing this uh, radio show, which has been more than a decade ago, um, most of my interactions with uh, black people... It, I mean, aside from the fact that, you know, I went to uh, schools that were interracially mixed. Um, but 
but in my adult life, most of my interactions with black people were fellow musicians. Mm-hmm. And in that environment, we didn't worry about what anybody called anybody or, you know, how anybody felt about anything. It was, can you play? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, if you can, let's jam. And, mm-hmm. and, and there was a, a common language, a common um, relating mm-hmm. in, in a way that was, um, you know, completely unspoken, I suppose. Um, how do we, how do we synthesize that kind of common ground in everyday life and pursuits? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's important, right? You built authentic relationships with people who are different from you, right? And that's, that's key. That's so important. And that's what a lot of people are missing. i I have had a lot of people reach out to me in the past few weeks asking like, "Hey, how how do I how do I diversify my group of friends? It's all white. It's all people like me. How do I get how do I do that?" And that's the key. Part of it is that it's hard, right? Because we have Well, lived you run the in- you run the risk if you're intentionally, you know, trying to diversify your address book. You, you run the risk of of tokenism or or yeah. you know trying to meet quotas um it, it yeah. you have to find something that makes it sincere some kind yes. of common interest yes you can't you can't fall into that trap absolutely and i want people to also recognize like let's say you walk into your work lunchroom and you don't immediately know anyone to sit with Right, and you go down and maybe sit next to a white person like you instead of a black person. That's also an intentional choice that was made, maybe unconsciously, but that's also a choice, right? And, and we're feel- and, and we're all inclined to do that, black and white. We we all have these biases that kind of guide us in certain directions, make us feel comfortable. It doesn't always happen by race, right? So, right. That we all have different biases, and, and, and so that's important to keep in mind. But we've all got some. Yeah, so being aware of that, you know, questioning, pausing when you think your bias might be showing up in a decision that you're making or an action that you're taking, that's important. And, you know, we, we all have to work at this because our, our social spaces have been largely segregated partly from explicit policies, you know, when you had like redlining that didn't allow black people to get loans in certain areas of town, like you got segregated areas of town that made it harder to form authentic relationships with people, you know, who are different than you because they weren't living right next door to you, for example. So things like that make it harder, but it's important, like you said, to build these authentically around some common interest around something make that makes sense because a lot of times you know you were talking about redlining and i was thinking that uh, the city i grew up in flint michigan was the first uh, large american city to pass a um uh, uh, open housing act mm-hmm. but yet people didn't really start behaving differently so it's not something that policy can do alone. 
Yeah, it's not it's not alone, right? And there's so sometimes it's an explicit policy. I'm thinking of also places where, you know, you didn't have a specific policy, but if you had non-white people moving into certain areas, then the it might start lowering property values and real estate agents would take advantage of that and and uh, you know, approach white people like, "Hey, your property value is going down. Look who's moving in next door. Don't you want to sell me your house quick and move somewhere else?" right? And then turn that house around for a big profit. There's there's policy, there's procedure, and then there's practices, what happens on the ground. And there's bias built into all of that in different ways. Well, let me ask you this, Michael, because I, I think there are a lot of people, and, and maybe more now because of uh, heightened awareness, um, unfortunately, in the wake of the, the George Floyd killing and, and a couple of other subsequent acts, the the Breonna Taylor comes to mind, but um, more people are aware now that things ought to be different and even may have a glimpse of what that should look like, but maybe don't know how to start or make that happen. Does your book with uh, Tiffany, Subtle Acts of Exclusion, um, does it continue to identify the problem or are there exercises built into the book that can get people started down the right path? There are definitely practical guidelines, exercises, things you can do to start down that path. You know, we are not into just building awareness of the problem and then leaving it at that. We want to help people do things better and differently. And so there's all kinds of guidelines in there for, you know, if you're the, for example, with subtle acts of exclusion or microaggressions, what's a productive way you could talk about this if something happens to you that makes you feel excluded? What about if you just overhear someone else say it? What what can you do? What about if you're the person that said the thing and you got some feedback that that wasn't a great thing to say? What are some good ways you can react? And all of that, when we all do it together, we can really start to build trust. We can build better authentic relationships because there, there, there's more trust and commonality and um, inclusion built in. And we can start to kind of erode some of those foundations of, you know, unconscious biases and things like that that are, are the foundation on which those more explicit horrific acts of violence that we see rest, on which the, you know, the murders rest. Um, if we start to erode that foundation, we can work towards a culture shift, a paradigm shift. And so, yeah, there are really practical things in there for everyone to build that understanding, but also to influence behavior. Not exactly yeah. sure how to um, how, how to properly set this up, but there are these divisions going on right now, and things are, are very tense, and people seem to be very thin-skinned. If you try to correct someone, they bite your head off. How do you, how do we get and and in some of these cases of microaggressions they are unconscious they are unintentional how do we get people to be aware of their their aggressions mm-hmm. you know if they're you know if they're in the dark if it if it is in fact accidental how do we 
get them woke, you know, to use the expression, um, mm-hmm. you know, how to make how to make them aware that what they're doing is is clumsy and and awkward. Yeah. At a time when people are so hypersensitive about any sort of criticism. Yeah, p- yeah, people get um, very defensive. On all sides of the spectrum. <laughs> you know, this isn't just a thing that, that happens with white people or black people, but but everybody seems, like, just hypersensitive. Yeah, for different reasons, right? Sure. I mean, for example, black people are, are exhausted and sick of this stuff happening again and again and again. That's different than the kind of, you know, defensiveness that a white person might feel getting some of that feedback. I mean, I guess the bottom line is we are humans with complex emotions and feelings, and this stuff is hard, right? We've got to recognize that, first of all. Um it goes better in situations where we have relationships with people. Maybe it's family members. Maybe it's people that we work with. Maybe it's people in our immediate communities. Um, that tends to go better than like a Facebook argument, for example. Um, <laughs> and there are also there are ways of calling people in that are more effective. So, you know, instead of, hey, you're a racist for doing this, or you're a sexist for doing this, or you're homophobic for doing this, instead of that, um, hey, I know you didn't mean anything bad by this, but when you said this thing, when you asked me this question, it made me feel like I didn't belong, Um, right? So a way of calling someone in that is more productive building up understanding for allies to be able to call people in who might not be feeling that same frustration of hearing the same subtle act of exclusion 10 times in an hour, right? That's important. And then working, having people practice ways of not being defensive um, when they get feedback. So I just built an e-learning module, for example, that goes along with this idea of subtle acts of exclusion through my company, which is InQuest Consulting. Um, So we just built a a digital module that allows people to take common scenarios where these subtle acts of exclusion happen and practice responding from the same scenario from three different perspectives. If it was directed at you, if you just overheard it, or if you're the person that said it, practice different responses and see what happens. Practice it in the space of your own house and computer digitally first before you have to go and do it tomorrow in the real world when one of these things happens, because it will happen. And so practicing so that our first knee-jerk response is a better one can often make these interactions go better. What a tremendous idea. I like the idea of being able to sort of rehearse <laughs> ahead of time. Um, yeah. Be, because um, sometimes we don't say anything because we just don't have the confidence that we know the right thing to say. So true. So true. People don't have the language for doing it. And then as you're trying to figure out in your head what you would say, the moment's passed and you're like, ah, forget it. You know, and so one of the things we did in this book that's one of my my favorite parts of the book that I'm most proud of is develop a language 
for, okay, on the surface, a subtle act of exclusion is just a joke or just a compliment or just a question. But under the surface, what's being implied? And we looked across all the different examples across race and sexuality and gender and religion and, you know, disability. And what are the most common implications? And so we found eight of the most common ones, like you don't belong, you're a curiosity, you're a threat, you're invisible, right? You're not normal. So that what that does is give you a language for, hey, I know you didn't mean anything when you at bad when you asked me where am I really from, but that question makes me feel like I don't belong, right? So it gives you a language for speaking up about it, whether it happens to you or whether you're an ally. I, I, you'll appreciate this because of the, uh, the the way that it turned out. I had a, a person who who um, had moved to Flint uh, a couple of decades ago and started a business. He was running for mayor, and he had a very thick Asian accent. And I asked him where he was from, and he said, Ann Arbor. Yeah. <laughs> he had just, he had moved, you know, earlier up from Ann Arbor. Well, it turns out he, you know, he was from the, uh, was from the East um, and, and went to uh, U of M as you did and then started living and working in Ann Arbor and then moved up to Flint from there. And I asked him where he was from because I and I meant originally, and it was purely out of curiosity. But his answer was Ann Arbor. It was the last thing in the world I expected to hear. Well, right, and that's part of that's why that's a subtle act of exclusion, right? It's built on this idea. I mean, that Asian Americans aren't really American, and that happens to people whether they they've been born here, their parents have been born here. It still happens to people again and again and again. So that's a great example. And and I really was just curious. I you know I had no intention of making him feel exclusive, excluded. But it was, um, but it was especially funny to me because it it just it went completely sideways. He said, "I'm from Ann Arbor." Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, right, and and probably not you know not as funny to him because he probably hears that all the time. And it and um, it was clearly not an Ann Arbor accent. Right. I must right. I must say that. But yeah. Um, yeah. But uh inter- interesting stuff Michael and I I feel like we could talk about this for hours and and that's actually what all of us need to do. Um yeah. but uh the book is a great place to start subtle acts of exclusion how to understand identify and uh stop microaggressions by Michael Barron and Tiffany Jana. Am I saying that right? Jana, yep. Um, anyway, it's uh, a, a fabulous book and, um, and an important um, part of the journey to being more inclusive. Is yeah. uh, it's it's not just a matter of not being exclusive, but being inclusive. And and um, Michael, I, I want to thank you for spending this time with me and sharing your thoughts. Um, but I also uh, always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more. Uh, Michael, do you have a, a website where people can keep track of of your work, past, present, and future? Yeah, of course. So um, you can find more about me at my company's website, which is www.inquestconsulting.com. And that's a great place to get in touch with me. 
Well, Michael, thank you very much, and uh, good luck with uh, your work, but also good luck with the irises. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tom. This has been a great conversation. I appreciate the, the chance to talk with you. All right. Take care. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Michael Barron. He is a co-author of Subtle Acts of Exclusion, How to Understand, Identify, and Stop Microaggressions. Michael holds a Ph.D. in cultural anthropology and has been researching, teaching, and practicing around issues uh, related to diversity for over 20 years. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. They say singing can help you remember things, so here's some tips for parents out there during these tough times. Make sure your kids wash their hands for 20 seconds after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside. Virtual playdates, social and physical distancing can help save lives. Tell them they're safe and show your love and pride. Yes, we'll get through this together. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the Briggs. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write us at TomSumnerProgram.com. Call us at at 810-339-8255 or contact us on Facebook or Twitter. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner program where to go.
Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all-night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy. And it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. This presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. In the past few years, a type of meeting place has grown up throughout the country, which is called a coffee house. There are many uninitiated people who have never been into a coffee house, I being one of them. Uh, We're seated now at a table, across from which is a man uh, who seems rather depressed. Uh, Sir, uh, you you are depressed. Yeah. Uh, would it be getting too personal to ask you why? I'm not pretty. You are depressed because you feel you're not attractive. I'm not attractive. You're not good looking. No, I'm not. Well, what would you say, sir? That's why if I'm I... mainly depressed. Well, may I, may, I, may I say something to you, sir? Yes. You are a very attractive person. You're as attractive as nine out of 15 people I know. <laughs> You're very kind. But you are. You're not you're an unattractive very, person. You're very sweet. But I, I know the, the truth, and I face it every morning. You're a good-looking man, sir. I'm not a man. I'm a woman. <laughs> oh, 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 I see. Oh, I, I, I beg your pardon. Uh, we'll, we'll go over to one of the other tables now okay. and see if we can speak. Uh, Goodbye. Thank you very Bye. much, sir. Uh, madam. <laughs> madam. Um, there's a gentleman sitting here wearing a pair of Levi's, a nicely laundered T-shirt, uh, looking very much like an actor. Uh, I might describe him as looking like a cross between uh, Marlon Brando and Joanne Woodward. <laughs> I, I want to explain that. You do have blonde hair. May we sit and talk with you, sir? 
if you are so uh, in your mind, too. <laughs> yes. Was I right, sir? Was I right? Are you an actor? Yes, I uh, happen to be a uh, lesbian. <laughs> I think, uh, I think, <laughs> I think, sir, I think you, can I check you on that? I think it's, uh, you mean thespian. Well, uh, is that what? Thespian. Thespian, actually. Thespian. Yes, yes. I'll never get that wrong again. <laughs> Sir, who is your... Who do you consider the greatest actor we have in America today? The greatest actor in America is Tallulah Bankhead. <laughs> I think she's well, she's a, she's a great actress. Yeah, I I'm, mean, I don't mean an actor-actress. I mean that she knows what she's doing up there, you know? Well, who else do you like? Who would you pattern yourself after? I would pattern myself after... I love that picture, The Fugitive Kind. I loved it very much. Very much. Uh, so... So you're trying to... I tried to uh, be like Brando with my T-shirt and just look uh, very much like Joanne Woodward, who I love very much. I love her. Well, you know, usually when people... I also look a little like the producer. I love him, too. Marty Giroux. Is that again? Marty Giroux. He produced that picture. You'll notice my shoes are exactly like his. I love that picture yeah. that much. Well, sir, that I... I became everything in it. I see. Sir, I think I made a mistake. You're not an actor. Actually. No, I'm not an actor, well, I'm but, I'm, but I love to hang out here. Okay. Well, it was a pleasure speaking. Well, it was a pleasure almost to be an actor. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah. I've got to wend my way through the crowd. Oh, uh, good luck on your wending. <laughs> and goodbye. And if I can do anything for you, you just call upon me, sir. Can I talk to you now? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay. okay. I understand. You have to go to other people yes. on the record. I know that. Yeah, yeah. I know that. All right. I watched you before in the coffee house. All right, ladies. Goodbye. So long. I hope I'm an actor. <laughs> uh, We're going to a corner of the coffee house now. Uh, on the walls surrounding this table are many, many paintings. There's a gentleman sitting here with a palette, palette knife, some brushes, some oils, and I imagine that he is the gentleman who painted these paintings. Am I right, sir? That is correct in your assumption. And the painting... Uh, you are totally correct. Uh, the painting... And impeccably dressed, if I may say so. Thank you. Thank you very much. A lovely tie. Thank you. Gradually blending into the color of your suit. You are always interested in color and design. Color is my life. I am color. Your name is... Uh, what is your name, sir? Corinne Corfu. <laughs> Corinne Corfu, uh, you are yes. Greek. I hope I am Greek. I would like to be Greek very much. Well, you're, that is a Greek name and you have a Greek accent. Yes. Well, then perhaps I am. <laughs> well, don't you know your... Don't you know your derivation? No, I do not know uh, my derivation. Gypsies stole me as a child. A band of gypsies. And you were brought up where? I was brought up in the Persian Gulf, right here in Miami. <laughs> It's the Persian Gulf. No, it's a gypsy tea house. The rest are called the Persian Gulf. I would like to talk to you about your paintings. Now, yes, you certainly know it's my life. Color and art. I are, love art. They are very unusual. I noticed that... God bless you for your perceptions. <laughs> I noticed one... You also... Uh, you sculpt, too, I noticed. Main, some, uh, sculpting and painting. All the arts. Uh, there is a, a metallic sculpture there that is very interesting. Yes, metal, metallic. What do you call that? It's just a series of wires uh, in a grid-like effect. What oh, do you mean you, above the door? Yes, what do you call yes, that? Yes, that's called air conditioning. <laughs> Yes. No, I... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, sir. I did not uh, make that. No. Uh, the Fetters. The Fetters Company made but it's very beautiful. Yes. Your paintings are very abstract, I noticed. Yes, but they don't blow air out. So that the machines. No. May I ask you about some of the paintings? Yes, they certainly may. That painting there that is entitled... The gull on a hot rock. Yes. Now, I don't see anything on that but a bunch of little specks. 
Yes, well, I saw the girl on a hot rock from over five miles away. <laughs> oh, I see. I was see. standing on a cliff. That's why I painted in the perspective, the three little dots. Now, uh, getting closer, sir, I'm, uh, may I examine a little more closer? Certainly, not too close. Yes. yes. Now, that is not paint, those dots. They look like, that's, those are flies. Yes, sir. they are. They're flies. But you didn't paint that. Those are real flies. No, I took them, uh, caught them in my hand until the air was out of their bodies and they died. <laughs> and then I... Uh, you pasted them onto put them? Put little dots of blue and put them on the dots. And, and they represent the gold and the rocks. I had to kill them. If I had not killed them, if they were not dead and glued to my picture, <laughs> then I have no picture. <laughs> fly away, I got nothing, Charlie. I see. I'm in the dark. Well, I excuse you. What are you going to buy? Well, sir, may I ask you about this particular abstract? Yes, they're mainly so... impressionistic, post-impressionistic, yes. pre-impressionistic, and impressionistic. <laughs> yes, this one is more of a... An academician type of painting. No, it's not. Well, for instance, it's very graphic. It's very graphic. Yes, it's it, very graphic. The, it's very graphic. The, <laughs> it's a draftsman-like quality. The spaghetti looks like spaghetti. The limp salad looks like limp salad. And the garlic oh, bread oh, looks oh, like garlic bread. Oh, oh, no. That's not a picture. That's my supper. <laughs> I, I, it happens to be resting on a frame and in my easel. Oh. Uh, that's my dinner. I eat that. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. sir. It looks... Do you like... Wait a minute. Do you really like it? Well, it is. Do you think it looks like the a... The composition a is rather... Of, uh, yes, I thought it was thickly painted. I tell you what. <laughs> if you really like it, I can lacquer it up and give it to you for 40 hours. No, I'm afraid... I'm no. afraid I wouldn't want to take your... All deprive right. you of your supper, sir. How about just a coffee and cake? <laughs> Maybe not for $20. No, sir, I... Give me a dollar and a half for the coffee <laughs> Sir, I'm really not interested. Give me 40 cents, you can have it. All right, here's 40 cents, sir. All right. Thank you very much. Nice working with you. Yes. I hope you come in again. I will, sir. God bless your tie. I, I don't want the coffee. No, sir. you want the picture with the flies? No, you just keep Give it. me a dime. <laughs> you can have it. I kill more flies. What the hell is it? All right. Goodbye. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Welcome back. That wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. Got to squeeze in a little uh, Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks there from their album 2,000 Years of Humor. Uh, they won a Grammy for that album because of the uh, skit, uh, The 2,000-Year-Old Man, that uh, Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks made famous with their improvisational style. Carl Reiner passed away uh, yesterday, uh, or last evening rather, at his, uh, at his home in Beverly Hills at age 98. Um, you know, one of the things about doing this show, it's, uh, it's always a treat, and I love all of the guests I've had on the show, but if I had to pick a favorite interview, it would probably be Carl Reiner. I got a chance to spend an hour talking with Carl Reiner, and he... Um, inspired everyone who ever made you laugh in the 20th century. It was uh, phenomenal and worked, just continued working right up until he passed away yesterday, um, well into his 90s. Anyway, uh, we're going to do a whole Remembering Carl Reiner uh, coming up this Thursday on the show. But uh, I want to say thank you to the guests who did appear on the show today. Um, of course, Michael uh, Barron, who we just heard this past hour, and then earlier in the show, Genesee uh, County Clerk Register John Gleason, who's running for re-election in the upcoming August primary, and 
Then in the second hour of the show, his challenger uh, in that race for uh, Genesee County uh, Clerk Register, Renee Watson. I want to thank both of them. And uh, also my co-host, Andrea Sutton, for joining me to kick things off uh, this morning. She'll be back tomorrow morning when we have another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. We'll be talking about uh, the uh, Supreme Court and uh, with uh, Brendan Beery. And, of course, tomorrow's Wednesday, which means armchair politics. Woodrow Stanley will be joining our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter. So uh, join us tomorrow for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. That's Smoking George Winters, Tickling the Ivories. Let me know it's time to head down the hall to the living room. But I'll be back uh, in the bunker uh, tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.